Price, that's the number one technical indicator. You do best by investing for the longer term. If you can't explain what the business is doing, then that is a huge red flag. Some technological change is going to put you out of business. It really is a genuinely extraordinary situation. Welcome back. I'm Hayden Brain, and you're listening to Opto Sessions, where we interview the top traders and investors from around the world, uncovering their secrets to success. Brad Longcar is a biotechnology expert, a pioneer in biotech investment, and the index provider for two NASDAQ-listed biotech ETFs, Longcar's Cancer Immunotherapy ETF and the China Biopharma ETF. Brad is CEO of Longcar Investments and has a wealth of investment experience, having started out at Franklin Templeton as part of their management trading program. Brad's also spent time in the US political sphere, having been appointed senior advisor at the US Treasury Department in between an investment directorship in the Bush-Cheney administration and a short tenure as director of administration for John McCain. Brad currently shares his expertise on longcarblog.com, nasdaq.com and contributes opinion pieces to endpoint news we discuss the rampant innovation transforming a constantly evolving industry before examining long cars two unique etfs we finish the interview by looking ahead where brad highlights his favorite innovations at the cutting edge of biotechnology enjoy welcome to the podcast brad it's great to have you on the show how's your week been so far Thanks a lot for having me. Uh, With biotech, there's never a dull moment. Uh, Last week, we had a a really monumental approval of a new Alzheimer's medicine in the United States. And um, we're still all trying to figure out what that means because there's some controversies behind it. And then this week, we've had some major vaccine uh, readouts. And so that's one of the things that I, I like about biotech is it's very news driven and catalyst driven and um, you know, it can be quite exciting when there's important news happening <laughs> and over the last week. That's definitely been the case. Yeah, absolutely. I can imagine it's been extremely busy over the past week or even over the past few months, probably since the start of the year, no doubt. But um, I think we can get into that theme almost straight away. Uh, the pandemic has had an enormous financial impact on, on many sectors and, and a lot of the time that's been negative. But biotech has at least seemingly weathered the storm. Between January 2020 and January of this year, the average share price for European and US biotechs, for example, increased at more than twice the rate of the S&P 500. So do you think we can expect this sort of trend to continue over the next 12 months? What, what do you think your, uh, what's your outlook for the biotech sector over the next 12 months in general? Yeah, well, uh, you know, I can't really predict future performance. No one has a crystal ball. But what I would say is, uh, you're absolutely right. The way I describe it is biotech went mainstream last year. Mm. And what I mean by that is, you know, biotech has always been a niche in the, in like the investing world and really overshadowed uh, by the tech sector. I mean, the, the tech sector is just magnitudes larger and one thing I have always been frustrated by as a, you know, a biotech uh, investor is that, you know, with tech, you can see like a Tesla driving down the street or you can use Zoom or, you know, a new social media app. And so everyone understands it and feels like, you know, they, they want to invest in it or something. So biotech's different because it's so technical. You don't normally see these advances and 
it's really frustrating because there's so many game-changing things happening in medicine today. It's just so exciting. And mm. one, I think, silver lining of the tragic year that we had last year is that, first of all, I think that the average person out there for the first time, um, you know, maybe ever for a lot of people really understand how integral our sector is to the normal functioning of society. And I think another thing that's, you know, positive, you know, from the sad event is, you know, people saw like mRNA, for example, you heard these stories about how traditionally Mm. it takes four to five years to develop a vaccine. And look what companies like Moderna and BioNTech and Pfizer did and how quickly they were able to develop those mRNA vaccines. And what I tell people is there's like a dozen mRNAs out there, you know, different things that are game changers in medicine that um, mm-hmm. in many cases like mRNA might be platforms. And so I think it was, I, I think it was a big deal for our sector that biotech essentially, not from a stock market perspective, of course, but just from a pandemic perspective was literally on the front page of every news site um, for an entire year and still is. And so, Mm. you know, you had a lot of money that flowed into our sector. Um, People were, for better or worse, kind of throwing money at headlines. But um, I think people have really appreciated biotech's role in society and also started to understand some of the, the amazing advances that are happening today. So, I don't know what the performance is going to be. Um, Nobody does. But what I would say is, I think that people have woken up to the fact that this is an industry of the future. And so I expect it to be less of a niche, um, you know, the way that people perceive it. I I expect it to be more of a mainstream sector. And I guess the last thing I'd say is, you know, I meet people and, and I hear people talk in the news all the time who were like tech investors or what we call generalists. In, in, in biotech, we have what, what we consider to be life sciences specialists, and then uh, like everyone else who's kind of generalists who invest in everything. And one thing I've heard a lot is, you know, over the last six, six to eight months is there's a lot of generalists out there who've said, you know, I need to get caught up. You know, I need to start understanding how to invest in, in, in biotech. And um, mm. I think that's a good thing. I think science is is a great thing to be investing in, in my opinion. Yeah, no, I'd absolutely agree. Yeah, it's a, an interesting point about it sort of becoming mainstream as a result of this pandemic. Uh, I wonder if the growth within this sector already existed, but perhaps the pandemic has accelerated that trend. What's your take on that? Well, I guess what I'm trying to say is the science, especially over the last five or six years, has been very special. Um, like there's there's special things brewing. We'll talk about technologies later, but mm-hmm. you know, there's using the immune system in cancer. There's something called gene therapy and gene editing. Like th- these are new ways of uh, you know of of new types of therapies that you know have I think a lot of promise and potential, and some of which are already on the market today. So the science has really been accelerating and. Um, Hopefully it will continue. I mean, that's ultimately at the end of the day, what, what, if you're investing in biotech, you're investing in science. And so, you know, if, 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 if scientists and companies keep succeeding, um, 
then that's what's going to determine whether it's a lucrative sector to invest in. If the if the science kind of fails, then you know it's it's in big trouble. So I, I think our our sector is maybe less like you know cyclical than others, although we are affected by the ups and downs of the economy and interest rates and things like that. But um, I think at the end of the day, what mm-hmm. The bedrock of all of this is is science, and um, for last at least you know five to ten years, I think something really special has been brewing, and um, hopefully that will continue. I, I I can say as somebody who follows the science very closely, there's a lot of really promising things um, that are in development right now. So it's a very exciting sector to be around. Yeah, no, absolutely, it does seem to have reached an inflection point in terms of the innovation within the sector uh, over the past sort of five years or so, as you say. Um, and I think that's a fascinating start to the podcast. And there's some themes that we'll get into, as you alluded to earlier, later on. But let's uh, return to sort of your background and what you do on a day-to-day basis, just to give the listeners a, a bit of context for the rest of the conversation. Um, so in doing my research before the call, prior to Long Car, you worked for Franklin Templeton, uh, an asset manager, and you worked for them as part of the management training program. This wasn't something that I was familiar with. So perhaps you can talk to us about what that role entailed. Yeah, that was my first job out of college. And um, it was really the best first job out of college you could possibly have had mm-hmm. um, if, if you were interested in finance. And what it was, is it was a two-year program and there were a handful of us that were were in this. I, I I'm guessing maybe seven or eight, if I can remember. And um, what you did was every quarter you worked in a different department of the company, and so you were exposed to all levels of essentially how a mutual fund company worked, which is what Franklin Templeton is. And so you'd work like you know, for a quarter in fund accounting, and then in a, a quarter in risk management, and then a, a quarter in, you know, portfolio management. And um, it was really a great way to be exposed to all of the different pieces that, you know, go towards, um, you know, making a mutual fund company run. And so it was really a special you know, first job type opportunity. I'm very grateful for it. I'll tell you a very quick anecdote. I, I hope I don't wander off, but um, just goes to show you how, you know, uh, surprising life can be and, and how some of the most important lessons you learn in life are quite unexpected. So, so every quarter we kind of, you know, we're told like which department we'd be working in next. And when I started, my the very first assignment I received for the first quarter was actually human resources. And it's funny, like as a young person, you know, you want to go straight to like portfolio management and, you know, you're like competing with the other people in this program to like look good and everything. And I remember being so dejected that my, my first quarter was going to be in human resources. And so when I started, like soon after I started, September 11th happened. And our company, Franklin Templeton, had actually just acquired a subsidiary that sadly was um, at the top of one of the tw- Twin Towers. And uh, ultimately, we, we sadly lost um, nearly 100 people. And one of my jobs in human resources was actually to reach out to the families and just kind of coordinate and communicate with them. And um, it really hit home to me, you know, what's important in life. Um, and, um, it it was my first 
job experience, like straight out of college was like, you know, going to this human re- resources and, and having this like, you know, huge, sad event happening and, and, you know, being really in the center of it, working with those families. And um, I traveled to New York a lot and, and go to the financial district. And it's really amazing to this day, whenever I walk by the, the Twin Towers monument, I, I recognize a lot of those families that I spoke with uh, back then. And um, it's an experience that I'll never forget that, um, you know, we're all working hard in, in finance. At the end of the day, we're all people, you know, trying to do good things, you know, who have families. And, um, you know, it really, really shows what's important in life. And, you know, over the last year, we've all gone through something like that as well with the pandemic. And so sometimes it's a reminder that there's, there's more important things in life um, than the stock market and investing for sure. Yeah, no, absolutely. I think oh, that was a fascinating anecdote. I'm glad you interrupted me to share it. I think um, I think that was a really interesting thing to share, and and what a kind of start to your professional career. Um, I mean, that's that's being thrown in the deep end, and and then some. So, why don't we move on then to your to your next couple of roles? Um, I've, I've kind of stuck two together uh, in reading your LinkedIn profile. It seemed that uh, you had a sort of sojourn within. U.S. political space, first as director of investments for the Bush-Cheney administration in 2004, I believe it was, and then later as director of administration for John McCain in 08, I think. So how, how did you come to be involved in U.S. politics in general? How, how did that come about? Yeah, so towards the end of my two-year management training program um, experience at Franklin Templeton, I, I got word that um, President Bush's reelection campaign needed somebody to invest their money. Um, I knew his brother Jeb well. Um, I'd worked with him in the past. And, and so because I was working at an investment company, my name came up. And um, essentially, the campaign had was going to have about $100 million of cash. And back then, that was a lot of money. Today, those campaigns have like billions of dollars. Um, but back then, that was like an unheard of amount of money. And they wanted to not just like put it in a bank account and not earn anything. Um, obviously, you can't be like super risky in, in, in trying to like do anything on top of it. But essentially, um, I was hired to manage that $100 million in a very short-term money market-like fashion in municipal bonds. So it was really an opportunity I couldn't pass up because, you know, I was like young guy, you know, like bottom of the food chain at Franklin Templeton. And here's an opportunity to manage $100 million for the president of the United States. Um, It was really an unbelievable opportunity um, so I went there and, and did that. And again, I don't want to blow it out of proportion because it was very short-term paper, you know, super safe, um, uh, municipal, you know, bond type things. Um, but it was still, you know, a privilege um, and, a, you know, a huge responsibility. Um, and, and so I went there and did that. And uh, I also managed the budget for a bunch of the divisions. So just kind of like kept track of their spending and everything. And then, um, yeah, for McCain, like kind of did the same thing. In that case, they didn't uh, want to do the investing like the Bush did, but um, but they needed to some someone to manage the budget and also to, to help uh, run the administration department. And those are very specialized roles. Like 
there's not like a pool of people who have experience doing those things. So since I did it on the previous one, like I was a natural person for them to call um, to do it again for McCain. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, what what an interesting uh, uh, couple of roles. And I think in between those two positions, uh, still within the, the political space, I suppose, you were appointed senior advisor to the Undersecretary for International Affairs at the uh, US Department of the Treasury. So, I mean, for, for someone that isn't uh, massively au fait with US politics, obviously being based in the UK, perhaps you can just sort of tell the listeners typically what sorts of things you'd be advising on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. So so for full disclosure, I was there for a very short period of time. I actually hated it. <laughs> but oh, wow. the, the, yeah. The background on that is so like, you know, when you work for a presidential campaign, if you win, of course, there's appointment opportunities throughout the government. Mm. Um, all departments in the US government have room for what's called political appointees. And so I was appointed to work right. in the Treasury Department and my boss was a guy named Tim Adams, who was the Undersecretary for International Affairs, as you said. So he's the top person at the Treasury Department for international relations and like monitoring like international economies and things like that. And because of that, he was on the road pretty much the entire, you know, his entire job. And so um, there were two senior advisors, myself and one other person. And the other person was kind of like a policy advisor. And my role was to keep the department running. So I was in charge of like, you know, budget, uh, personnel, you know, all, all of the, the daily operations types things to keep the department running. And I was also in charge um, the Treasury Department wanted to place Treasury officials in embassies around the world in important economies. Those are what we call attaches. And so I, I work to open a lot of those attache offices. Got it. Okay. Yeah, interesting. Um, but, you, but you hated it. You weren't there for a long time. Yeah. Why didn't it work out? Why weren't you keen on, on that position? Yeah. So to me, uh, like, I have a lot of respect for the government and people that work there at that stage of my life, you know, I was still like a young hard charger (laughs) and (laughs) um, to me that it felt very bureaucratic. You know, that was, that was the type of um, workplace where like 501, like everyone was out the door essentially. Um, (laughs) And so, you know, I just felt like, I I don't know. I, I felt like I was just kind of spinning my gears doing like, I guess like a, I don't know, like, a nine to five that I wasn't happy with. Um, and so I was only there for a short period of time. Yeah. I know people that have, have worked within government and civil service here in the UK, and there's a similar sort of culture there in terms of very much nine to five out the door at 501, as you say. So yeah, definitely, uh, definitely empathize with you uh, <laughs> on, on that. Um, so I think that's done a really good job of explaining your earlier career. But then obviously to bring us to present day, we need to discuss your CEO role uh, at Long Car Investments and kind of what you're doing now on a day-to-day basis. How do you go from all of that, the earlier sort of asset management stuff at Franklin Templeton, the later political positions within certain administrations and for certain presidents to then founding essentially your own investment firm? Like, Was there a particular event or or thing that happened to to kind of make you take the leap, or how how does that come about? Yeah, that's a great question. Actually, I I actually need to go back in time. So um, I've always been a bit of 
both a science nerd and a finance guy. <laughs> um, so like at a very early age, you know, I had like a custodial account, like, you know, that my dad had to oversee. We were doing dividend reinvestment programs. And I, I think I was investing in stocks like before I was even in high school. So I always loved the stock market, but I also love science. I had a high school biology teacher. His name was Al Frisbee. Um, who had a huge impact on my life. I absolutely loved biology. And when I started in college, I went to school in Florida at the University of Miami. Um, I actually started out as a pre-med student. And in my college, pre-med was a weed-out major. (laughs) (laughs) And I kind of got weeded out because um, I love biology, but I hated chemistry. Mm. Um, And to this day... I still hate chemistry. Um, (laughs) So I ultimately um, changed. In college, I ultimately transferred from pre-med to finance, um, but I've always had this love of biology. And so like when I was working at Franklin Templeton, um, like I wasn't working in biotech specifically, I was doing that training program. Mm. And, you know, even when I was doing those, those, you know, campaign and treasury work, um, I was always like, you know, keeping up with, you know, what, what was going on in science and biology and like from a stock market perspective, you know, I was interested in biotech companies and everything. And um, uh, so, you know, my last like official job in, in Washington was working for John McCain. And, you know, sadly, we lost that election. And when you lose, unlike my treasury department experience, like there's no jobs, like, <laughs> and also it was just like a very stressful experience. And, and, you know, I'd kind of had enough of that. So I was born and raised in the suburbs of Kansas city and I wanted to move back home and focus on like, get back to the investment world and also, you know, keep track of science and everything. And So this was 2008, and it was literally the heart of the financial crisis. Um, It's one of the reasons why, you know, John McCain lost that election is because the financial crisis was happening and the economy just literally went into a nosedive then. And um, uh, so I like my original plan was to like look for a job, but this was the financial crisis and all companies were like laying people off. And so like, how I started doing this was out of necessity. Like there were no jobs out there. And so got home and like, I literally, you know, started um, investing for myself and for my immediate family. We essentially started like a family office and, you know, I started doing research and I started blogging and tweeting and I started traveling to uh, investment conferences and to medical meetings. Like one thing that's, totally unique about um, biotech is a lot of the information you need to know to be a good biotech investor has nothing to do with the stock market. So for example, throughout the year, we have what are called medical meetings. So like in cancer, for example, the biggest cancer research conference of the year is called ASCO. Um, It happens in Chicago in June every year. Um, And it has nothing to do with the stock market, but it has everything to do with the stock market. Like all of these companies, you know, present their, the results of their clinical trials and their latest research and everything. Um, and where you hear all about that is at those conferences. And then, you know, investment banks also hold, you know, conferences where companies give updates and everything. And so, 
yeah, I was just kind of um, doing, you know, I, I, I kind of like, you know, started out hoping to, you know, to get a job. And, and in the process, I started becoming like a full-time investor and creating essentially a company of my own. And with my experience at Franklin Templeton, you know, I knew like the mutual fund industry very well. And one thing that um, I had seen, um, it, like, uh, you know, when I started really focusing back on in investing again, is how ETFs were really taking over the world. You know, uh, like mutual funds, you know, frankly, are, have been kind of going away. Um, and everyone's been focusing on ETFs, at least that, that's been my experience. And, you know, there's, there's thousands of ETFs um, today that cover like all kinds of different things. But back then, there were only a handful of biotech ETFs. And one thing I noticed as a biotech investor myself um, is that they were very broad, in my opinion, and very hard for the common person to understand. Um, and very, in my opinion, like, you know, not focused on the right things. And, you know, we talked at the very beginning of this program about how special some of the advances in, in science and in biotech are today. And so, I had this entrepreneur, entrepreneurial light bulb go off in my head that, you know, I wanted to start creating products that help more people invest in the biotech sector and, and, and invest in science and invest in, in innovation. Um, and so I started to research um, the, you know, how ETFs work. And so slowly my focus transitioned from, you know, investing my own money and, and that of my immediate family and like maybe actually like, you know, doing like a, a business that would help, you know, more people as well. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I mean, why, why don't we dig into kind of the, the investment philosophy behind some of those products that, that you went ahead and, and set up? Um, I was reading your uh, website and particularly the about section on the site because uh, I wanted to try and understand kind of what sets you apart from peers and what long car investment is is really about I suppose and there was a tagline on there that read precision medicine meets precision investing so how do you integrate this precision within your investment approach do you think yeah so the idea there is I'm a big believer that the way that people think about biotech investing is changing or should change. Mm. And uh, what I mean by that is like when I started out, you know, now over 20 years ago at Franklin Templeton, I thought of the tech sector as one thing. Um, you know, there's like a massive ETF, the triple Qs. And, um, you know, especially back then, it, I think most people thought of tech as one thing. And what happened over time is I don't think most people think of tech as one thing anymore. I think they view it as like individual sectors within tech. So there's, you know, semiconductors and software and social media and, you know, all of these different things. Some of them are high innovation and, you know, higher growth industries and some are low innovation and low growth industries. And I think they appeal um, you know, to different groups of investors, but but I think that investors in the tech sector view them differently. Well, I think that 
when I was had the idea for this business, and it's even true today, although the transition is definitely starting for sure, I think that people think and thought of biotech is the same way we used to think of tech. They think of it as one monolithic thing. And what I know as a biotech investor is it's not, it's exactly the same thing as tech. Like there's, in my opinion, areas of biotech that are high innovation and, and you know, higher growth potential. And there's, there's areas that, you know, payers are really pushing back on. And, and there's areas that, you know, are, are really ones that, you know, you may want to avoid. And so what I wanted to do was to help make um, products that segment it in that way, because I think that's the future of how people will think of biotech. And at the end of the day, the foundation behind all of this is science. And so what, what I hope to do is, you know, to create things that help investors you know, think about investing in the best science within our industry. Yeah, I mean, that's really interesting. So have you, I don't know whether this is down on paper or anywhere on your website or simply perhaps just in your head, have you defined, I suppose, the biotech universe? Like, are you fairly definite and concrete on the certain sectors within biotech? Uh, I just wondered whether you had that kind of mapped out. No, I mean, it. well, it changes over time. So for example, like, you know, messenger RNA, like we weren't talking about that five years ago because it, it wasn't like a platform. And so like, you know, gene therapy, um, you know, over a decade ago, you wouldn't have been really talking about gene therapy. So I think it's dynamic um, and, and it really changes over time. Like, I don't think there's a, a set number of pieces that make up the biotech puzzle. I think it's like a thing that's, all, you know, dynamically changing over time yeah no absolutely and and arguably you could say that about the the kind of sector universe that's laid out by msei i mean to to define a whole investable universe within a definite number of sectors perhaps isn't something that's really fit for purpose in in 2021 it's something that we've spoken to previous podcast guests about that's why i asked the question whether you felt like there was a set uh, universe within biotech, or as you've, I think, rightly suggested, it's more of a evolving uh, kind of living organism, I suppose, in in the sense that innovation uh, over time will will add to it, and it will continue to grow over the next ten years, twenty years, thirty years, and so on. So, I think I think that's a really interesting insight. And just to finish on your investment philosophy, I suppose, and the way long car think about their investments. Uh, again, on on that section of your website, you you point out, I think rightly, that biotechnology innovation matters. It's an important thing, regardless of whether you can make money out of it, I suppose. So is the focus for you in this area of the market about more than investment returns? To what extent is this a vocation for you? Well, for sure. Look, I, I'm an investor. The investment return is always paramount, I think, if you're if yeah. you're designing like a financial product. That always comes first and foremost. There's some people, I think, that wrongfully argue that with something like, you know, there's people, I've always heard people quote statistics that I, I think are bogus statistics, <laughs> where they'll say <laughs> something like, young people today, like it matters more than to them to invest in a good thing than it does the return of the investment. I, 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 
I highly doubt like the scientific rigor be- behind those types of statements. I think anything that's related mm-hmm. to investing, you know, people are looking first and foremost um, about whether it's, you know, a, a good investment. And so um, I think that those things um, you do matter a lot. And I do think that biotech investing matters a lot. You know, one thing that frustrates me um, often is, you know, ESG, for example, is, is a, you know, a massive thing today and, and continues to grow. And biotech's never really like included in the conversation, I think because pharmaceutical companies have such poor reputations <laughs> and are hated so much. Um, so biotech, I don't think is like really traditionally seen as like an ESG investment. Um, but like, what more important thing can you invest in than, you know, in a in your own small way, helping to a company develop a medicine that ultimately helps somebody one day? I think that's, you know, in, in life, like I, I, you know, I, I think we're all programmed to try to do the right thing. And so if, if I can invest and earn, you know, hopefully a good return um, while also doing a good thing for patients at the end of the day, like we always serve patients. You know, I always think of that as an investor, um, you know, doing something that at the end of the day is going to help patients because like the, the CEO of Merck um, from, from like 50 years ago, George Merck had a really great quote. Um, he said, you know, do what's right for the patient and, and the money um, will follow. And sometimes in an, as an investor, I feel the same way. So to be able to, to that the reason I like biotech so much is, you know, to be able to invest in something as, as important in, as medicine and, you know, these new technologies that are helping people. I mean, you know, the vaccine companies literally saved the world <laughs> this, this last year. I mean, that's no exaggeration. Um, so the, I think the investment aspect, you know, always comes first, but I do think that those other things are really important. And I think that biotech um, really doesn't get the, I don't know what the right word is, the credit it deserves when it comes to like, you know, doing a good thing for society. I mean, already, you know, the pharmaceutical companies like, are, are like you know, Pfizer kind of saved our country and already you're starting to hear politicians start to beat up on them again. Um, so it's kind of frustrating, but, um, but this sector does so much good for the world and, and I'm proud to be a part of it in, in my small way. We hope you're enjoying the episode. For interviews like this every Thursday, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, make sure you give us a star rating and leave guest suggestions along with any other feedback in the review section. Now, back to the show. Yeah, absolutely. I think that's a really interesting insight actually about ESG classification as well and biotech not necessarily being involved in that conversation. That's not that's not one that I'd considered before. So that was that was really fascinating. Um, and I think actually that's the perfect juncture to move on to the ETFs themselves uh, and to discuss them in greater detail. So if we start first with the uh, cancer ticker CNCR immunotherapy ETF, um, this this was Longcar's first fund, of which I should add that you're the index provider for. Firstly, why did you decide to base the inaugural fund on this particular or specific area of the industry? Yeah, so I've always been interested 
in this field of immunotherapy. So if anyone out there hasn't heard of it before, um, it, it basically is what it sounds like. It's harnessing the patient's own immune system to treat the cancer, you know, rather than using like a chemotherapy or something. So like my grandfather passed away from prostate cancer and one of the first immunotherapies um, was for prostate cancer. And I became interested in it at, at a very early moment. So immunotherapy, people have actually been working on it for over a hundred years. Um, and until about a decade ago, it was one of these fields where if you believed in it, people thought you were totally nuts. Um, <laughs> But I was one of the early believers. And, you know, around the time that I, I had this idea, um, you know, for this, you know, precision way of, of thinking about biotech, um, immunotherapy was really turning the corner. And those, uh, you started to see real success in clinical trials, and you were starting to see, you know, more drugs, immunotherapy drugs start to make it to the market. And so it really fits perfectly the definition of what I am trying to accomplish in segmenting biotech. To me, it's the most important science that's happening in our industry um, at that moment and, and, and even today. And again, I'm a big believer that the success factor of being a biotech investor is investing in the best science and I really believe this was the best science and I, and I do today. So at that time, um, I created an index to start tracking the companies. And I went to a company called Exchange Traded Concepts, which is what we call white label um, ETF issuer. They're, uh, they can basically, if you're somebody like me who has an idea for an index, um, you know, they can make it a reality and turn it into a fund. And it's really amazing um, how coincidental life is. So one of the founders of Exchange Traded Concepts, Jay Baker, was, uh, he was the first person that I contacted. He's a cancer survivor. So I, actually, I should say before this, you know, back then when I created this, it was like immunotherapy was turning the corner and like everyone in biotech knew about it. But like nobody outside of biotech like had really heard of this yet. Um, so, you know, in talking to like financial companies, like I went to different ETF firms to see if they'd be willing to license my index and turn it into a fund. And like, nobody knew like what the heck I was talking about. And when I got to this, uh, exchange traded concepts company, the first person I talked to Jay Baker was a cancer survivor. He got it Im immediately. And one of the other uh, co-founders and, and uh, one of the directors of the company, Rich Hogan, amazingly was uh, in the trial. And they, these, both of these gentlemen have, shared, have said that it's okay for me to share this. Um, Rich Hogan was in one of the original like landmark immunotherapy trials. It was a combination of a drug, of two drugs called uh, nivolumab and Ipi, um, what are now Optivo and Yervoy. And so this guy was in this study and he, he credits it as saving his life. And so like when I went to them and I said, I've got, you know, I've, I've created this immunotherapy index. What do you think? Like every other person I had talked to up to that point, 
was like, what are you talking about? Go away. And these two cancer survivors um, knew exactly what it was and, and why it was important. Um, and so ultimately, um, they licensed the index and created the fund and the rest is history. Yeah, well, that's amazing. I mean, the serendipity in life uh, sometimes really, uh, really is astounding and what sort of perfect people to be receiving that pitch, I suppose. And uh, I mean, uh, the, the fund's gone on to do extremely well. We'll cover sort of historical performance in a second. But I just wondered whether, um, I guess, again, as more of a secondary or bonus motivation for, for the founding of the fund, you will have driven awareness in this space in in what, as you've as you've already pointed out, was a, a fairly sort of niche area of the industry. Is that is that one of many motivations to found this fund, or did that not really enter thinking? Without a doubt, as I described, I, I've been you know an early and fervent believer in immunotherapy. I believe it's just a better way to treat cancer, and um, yes, like. Um, most people hadn't heard of it back then. And even to this day, I think a lot of people have because number one, it's so prevalent today. And number two, like in the United States, like they even have commercials for these drugs. And so like you hear that word immunotherapy, but um, yeah, to be able to raise awareness for something that, you know, to me is is so important. And, you know, with my colleagues, you know, literally you know, one credits it with saving their life. Um, that's something that's very, you know, rewarding to me, um, for sure. Yeah, no, it sounds extremely rewarding. Um, and I said we discussed the historical performance of the fund. We don't have to go into too much detail on this, but I think it'd be interesting for our listeners to know that the fund, when I checked yesterday, is up 17% over the past 12 months. So, so very very solid and, and uh, commendable performance over the past year. Within that period then, if it, we won't look ahead, but within that period, what, what do you think the key tailwinds were supporting that performance, even if uh, there has been a slower uh, start to, to 2021? Yeah. So first of all, I don't want to come across as like, um, you know, I'm, I am the index provider and I, I can really, you know, describe the theme and what's going on and, and how I've um, compiled the index. So I don't want to comment too deeply on performance, but what I can say, the fee, what's been going on in the field over the last year, and I think this has been reflected, you know, in, in the, the way my index tracks it and, and uh, the science keeps marching on. So for example, um, you know, one thing we haven't really talked about yet, that's a really important component of this is immunotherapy itself is not one thing. There's dozens of approaches to immunotherapy. For example, there's one that's called cell therapy. Um, your listeners might be familiar with a term called CAR-T. And essentially what that is, is what companies can do today, and this is working well today in certain types of blood cancers, is they can draw the patient's blood and re-engineer the cells outside of the body so that they're better able to find markers on cancer cells. And then after they've done that re-engineering to infuse them back in the patient and, you know, let them find the cancer and go to work. So that's called cell therapy. There's other types of immunotherapies. There's a big class that are called checkpoint inhibitors that, um, Cancer kind of naturally puts up like a stop sign in front of immune cells. Um, 
that that's what we call a checkpoint. So there's something called checkpoint inhibitors. And so the immunotherapy itself is not one thing. It's actually one of the reasons I, I created this is because it's really hard even for experts to invest in this type of sector because in biotech, it's extremely hard to pick individual winners. And in this case, there's an additional layer of difficulty because it's hard to even pick the right, you know, modalities. And so I think like a, a, an index approach that's well diversified and bets on many of these things at the same time, um, in my opinion, is a good way to think about it. And so, so what's been happening over the last year, for example, is these drugs have been succeeding. So for example, that cell therapy approach that I talked about had a landmark approval in March. It was that CAR-T approach was approved for a type of blood cancer called multiple myeloma, um, which was a really important thing. But because before uh, this approval, that cell therapy approach was only working in certain types of lymphomas and leukemias. And so you're starting to see, you know, just over time, like, you know, not everything has worked. Um, you know, there, there's been a lot of failures, which is the way science is, but um, you're starting to see more drugs like the multiple myeloma approval um, make it across the finish line. And so, so I think that has been a big factor. And like another thing that I've been very proud of that's been unexpected is, you know, the pharmaceutical industry and the biotech industry, I think deserves a lot of credit because when COVID hit, it was kind of an all hands on deck mentality of like, how can we help out? Like, how can we put our scientists, you know, stop what they're doing and maybe focus on COVID? Or how can we, you know, take drugs that we're working on and maybe repurpose them for COVID? And another amazing thing, this was, you know, another, you used the right word, serendipity earlier is, you know, think about COVID and like vaccine development and all of that. Well, all of that um, is based on immunology and these cancer immunotherapy companies at the end of the day are immunology companies. And many of them, even though they were focused, you know, on cancer, um, were able to use their immunology know-how and kind of pitch into the cause. And so, for example, the mRNA companies were components of, of, of our index and because at an early time, they were focused on cancer. And um, today, you know, they're really infectious disease companies. You know, the world, including us, didn't see COVID coming and they were components in our index um, and, you know, ultimately were able to use their immunology knowledge to, to help tackle COVID. And a lot of other companies in our index, to a lesser degree, um, were able to kind of, I don't, you know, benefit from the, I, I guess, the momentum of that. And so there's been just like a handful of things like that. But the biggest thing that's really um, been moving stocks and therefore the index is um, just, you know, success in clinical trials and success in getting new drugs approved like that multiple myeloma CAR-T. Yeah. Okay, great. Well, let's dig into the index then. The underlying index of which you're the provider, I believe is made up of 30 constituents. So I, I read that the fund 
uh, is made up of 30 constituents and the fund mirrors the index. So I'm hoping that's correct, but you can tell me if I'm wrong. But um, either way, what sort of diversification are you, are you looking at or looking to achieve within the index? Are you looking for quite a broad diversification within this quite niche sector? But I suppose, you know, it, it could be broad, but that's relative given that, as I say, it is quite a niche uh, area or corner of the market. But yeah, what, what sort of diversification are you looking for? Yeah, exactly right. Um, we're just looking to create a diversified basket of the leaders of this, you know, of of this industry. And what we hope it will capture at the end of the day is the wide variety of work that's happening in in this field. Like I view it as like a cancer research basket, and you know, you're going to have companies that have successes in, in clinical trials. And um, the way we've designed it is it's 30 companies. And one thing that um, has been challenging when we were thinking about designing this at the very beginning is that you know a lot of the early leaders and even the leaders today of this industry are large pharmaceutical companies. So for example, the biggest immunotherapy drug on the planet is a drug called Keytruda um, from Merck. And Bristol-Myers Squibb has a, a huge one also called um, Opdivo. Um, and so in, for our index to be like a true immunotherapy index, um, th- you know, those types of companies like have to be in there. But at the same time, we also want to invest or we also want to focus on um, like middle and smaller cap companies that are, you know, developing like the next generation of immunotherapy drugs. And so the way the index is designed is it's 30 companies. And we start out by choosing the five like large, large cap pharmaceutical leaders in this space. So like the Mercks and Bristol's of the world. And then after we've chosen those five, like immunotherapy today has actually become a big thing that if we didn't do that, like literally almost every pharmaceutical company is like, you know, in some way involved in immunotherapy today. So we chose five like representative leaders. And then behind those, we have the 25 largest by market cap uh, biotech companies that are working on immunotherapy. And we chose to design the rules to choose the companies by market cap because we think, first of all, we don't, we're not active stock pickers, so it's not our job to like um, pick and choose favorites. We're designing a, an index. And number two, um, we view you know, the way that you know, the market is valuing these companies and their market caps mm. as you know, a a recognition of the quality of the science that those companies are working on because you know your average like middle and smaller cap biotech company they don't have revenue like you know they don't have products necessarily most of them are what we call dis- discovery stage companies and how they're mostly being valued is by their science um, and so we we view by choosing the 25 largest by market cap um, you know, companies that are focused on this, um, we view that as like mm. a good way of of pulling together, you know, the field in a diversified basket like that. And um, what ultimately happens when you do that is, you know, you have 
then exposure to all of these different types of immunotherapies. We've got a lot of CAR-T you know, cell therapy companies in there. We have companies working on what we call cancer vaccines. Um, we've got companies working on what are called bispecific antibodies. Um, so we've, we've got exposure to all of these different immunotherapy approaches. And one thing that's really cool as it evolves um, over time is you know, some of those things are going to succeed and some of them, you know, are not going to succeed. And over time, like as cell therapy succeeds, you'll see more companies working on it and you'll see the market valuing those companies higher. And so therefore it will become naturally, you know, a larger component of the index. Um, And as other immunotherapy technologies don't succeed, you know, the companies working on those will kind of fall off. And so I created this, um, you know, 2015, uh, a long time ago, over, over six years now. And um, it's kind of been cool, I think, to see it kind of the way we design this to naturally evolve um, with the field. I think it's, it's kind of a cool aspect of how like, you know, indexes and, and, and I guess passive management work. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. It's such a it's a really uh, valuable sort of snapshot of of this area of the market that I guess most people and certainly myself wouldn't necessarily be familiar with. Um, so it certainly alerted me to a few interesting companies that I uh, might otherwise uh, have been unaware of, or certainly some of the bigger companies actually having involvement in a space that I wasn't aware of. So so that was really interesting. I just wondered um, within the current makeup of of the index right now is there a particular bias towards a a region or a geography like is there a lot of u.s companies in there for example yeah well uh so you have for this one you have to be listed on a u.s exchange um if you're an adr so if you're you know uk or european Mm. or asian company if you're listed on the nasdaq for example um you would qualify so because of that you know the you know the capital of biotech today is the United States. And so the majority of the, of the companies for sure are U.S. companies, um, but it does give you exposure. The index gives exposure to those, you know, those ADR, you know, those foreign biotech companies from outside the United States that are ADRs. Yeah. Okay. Absolutely. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. Well, okay. So if the U.S. is the capital of, of, of biotech, perhaps, the new capital or the coming capital could be China. Um, I think that makes a, a kind of nice segue, hopefully, into your second or Longcar's second ETF, again, that you're the index provider for. Uh, this is the China Biopharma ETF, ticker CHNA. So um, I've, I've done a bit of research into this space, uh, and it's fascinating kind of how much China are really trying to take charge of, of this particular area. Uh, and according to a UNESCO report, China were responsible for 44% of global growth in research expenditure in the four years to 2018. So that was the latest comprehensive data that they had available. Uh, but that expenditure grew uh, from another report by 10.3% in 2020. So that momentum has continued to grow after that 2018 period that I just referenced there. So in your opinion, we've kind of perhaps given the status of, of the capital biotech to the US, but if there was a challenger to that and, and uh, one that seems to be growing momentum quite quickly, it might be China. What's your take on that? Are, there, are they at the vanguard of innovation uh, in this space, in your opinion? 
Yeah, I believe so. Like to me, this is such a fascinating story. So you're going to have to be careful. I don't know how much time we have, but I I can talk about this for <laughs> hours. So yeah, as as a biotech investor myself, um, a handful of years ago, I started to notice. So the bottom line on like China biotech is essentially before today, China did not have a biotech sector. So China's pharmaceutical industry was almost 100% generics based. And there was very little R&D and innovation and like Chinese companies were not inventing new drugs and not trying to like the whole market, there was no market um, for it. And uh, that started to change rapidly, um, especially over the last four to five years. And there's kind of a perfect storm of things that have catalyzed that change and really sparked um, the creation of a biotech sector in China. So one of them, for example, is the government. So the government there had... Uh, you know, everyone knows China is like a manufacturing-based economy. So mm-hmm. the government had this program called Made in China 2025. And the idea behind this program is like they're essentially said to themselves, like, you know, we need to take our economy, you know, to a new level um, and start focusing on those industries that are like the new economy you know, the, the higher value sectors of the future. And so this Made in China 2025 program is they highlighted a handful of industries, about a dozen, that they wanted to be not just self-sufficient in, but globally competitive in over that time period. And pharmaceuticals um, was one of those things. Um, and so essentially the government said, you know, we understand that pharmaceuticals and biotech is an industry of the future. Like we want to be leaders in it. So that's one change. Second thing is um, their version of the FDA, which is now called the National Medical Products Administration over the last handful of years has totally been revamped. So they create, there's an international organization that was created by our FDA the European EMA and the Japanese regulator called ICH. And that's meant to harmonize regulatory standards for drug development and approval across the globe. And China joined that in 2017. And that that's a really technical thing, but it's really important because it means to develop a drug in China today is essentially the same steps and therefore, hopefully the same quality checks um, as it would be to develop a drug in like Europe and the United States. And so that not only modernized their FDA, but it you know, started to have companies start to develop drugs like on the same playbook as like global companies. So, so having like, you know, a strong regulator that's up to global standards was really important. Um, you had entrepreneurs returning home, starting new, you know, biotech companies that, you know, work in, in the West um, in this industry. And from a stock market perspective, this was really the most important thing that catalyzed my interest in creating an index for this. The stock exchanges there until a few years ago, basically wouldn't let biotech companies list on the stock exchanges. And so like the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, for example, had a rule 
that you need to have a certain amount of revenue and profit to list there. And just like the government recognized that, you know, pharmaceuticals and biotech is an industry of the future, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange, you know, came to the same realization and said, if we're going to be a leading global exchange, you know, we need to compete in this category. And so, at the, uh, in April of 2018, they created a new rule just for biotech companies. We call it the, the Hong Kong Biotech Chapter, where they said, we're going to scrap that revenue and profit thing for biotech companies because we understand that's not how our industry works. And true development stage biotech companies will be able to list here in Hong Kong for the very first time. So that was monumental. Like, you know, I always tell people, that goes, the importance of that goes way beyond the stock market. Like if you don't have a stock market for a biotech sector, you can't have a biotech sector because our industry is very capital intensive and biotech companies are constantly needing to raise money and a stock market really facilitates that. So like, for example, you know, if you're a venture capital firm, there's a, you know, if you're, if you're able to list companies on the stock market, now you know you have potentially an earlier exit from your investment. Um, and so it just, that change was so monumental because it was really like a really key ingredient to the whole ecosystem. So, so anyway, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange changed this rule. And ever since then, there's been a biotech boom uh, or an IPO boom of biotech companies on the, the Hong Kong Stock Exchange. So since that rule changed, the first IPO was like in August of 2018, there's been at least 30 companies that have used that new biotech exception um, to list there. So it's caused a, a, a huge IPO boom. And so this was, you know, this is kind of day one of biotech, at least this, you know, on the Hong Kong exchange and, and, you know, essentially in China. And so I just kind of noticed all of that and started getting interested in it um, very early. Like I, I, I think I recognize the importance of that. Um, and so I'm the type of person like, so I just started to see like, you know, these news events, you know, like talk of that exchange change happening and, you know, I started to see companies, you know, that were founded by really smart people, you know, conducting good science, you know, start to be formed and, and developing drugs and everything. And I'm the type of person where, like, you know, I'll get like, I, I just said to myself one day, I'm literally going to get on an airplane and like, figure out what's going on over there. And I did, and I was really blown away. And, um, and so I wanted to create an index to really highlight what was going on there. And at the time, I'm not aware of any other thing like that. Um, like, I think I was so early at the time, I'm not aware of anything that existed like that. And so to me, um, it was really an educational thing because it helped people really, especially in the, you know, outside of China, like learn, you know, who the companies were and, and everything. And, and ultimately, you know, I, I took the same exact thing with her, my cancer index. I, I, I took it to my, you know, friends at Exchange Traded Concepts. And, um, you know, I said this should be a fund, I think. And they agreed and licensed it. And now it's a fund. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it, it's fascinating how those sort of several uh, factors converge. I mean, you've got the governmental participation uh, and regulation. You've got the uh, Hong Kong Exchange Admission as well that stuff converges 
to to really I guess equal and generate a, a pretty sort of interesting I think and compelling opportunity for for stock market investors I mean if I relate it back to that a lot of our listeners will be thinking about it in the, in those terms um so I think and it's it's an important uh, point to make and actually I've, I've got a couple of stats here that are pretty mind-blowing I think publicly listed Chinese biotech firms perform more than six times better and this is just an average against the S&P between January 2020 and January 2021 uh, with their average share price performance more than doubling in just that one year um, now this is translated into a significant performance for uh, the long car fund uh, I don't think we even need to go into it but I'll just call out the stat the fund is up over 52% over the past uh, 12 months uh, with similar performance year to date. So that so that performance is actually gaining in momentum uh, in, in more recent times as well. So, I mean, really compelling uh, historical performance that I think our listeners can, uh, can do their own analysis on, um, but really interesting. And I think it was key to, to at least call that out. Um, but let's just dig into a couple of areas of the index and its makeup, uh, and then we'll finish on a couple of your um, kind of opportunities and what you see ahead for the uh, biotech sector as a whole, uh, because I'm definitely not as busy as you, and we're already ten minutes over time. So let's <laughs> let's try and get through this stuff. Sorry about that. So I tend to talk a lot. It's my fault. <laughs> no, no, no worries at all. So the fund uh, or the index, the underlying index as well, is made up uh, 56 constituents. I counted. Um, so again, here, what sort of diversification are you looking for within the Chinese biopharma space? Yeah, so so this one's different than the cancer index. The cancer index mm. is set um, at 30 companies. Um, this one, there's no set number of companies. It's just meant to capture all biotech and pharmaceutical companies. And that includes like diagnostics companies and like any, you know, company that's truly in like the pharmaceutical ecosystem. Um, it's, it's meant to capture essentially all, all of them. And, you know, especially as this Hong Kong IPO boom is happening, we want to keep adding, you know, those companies over, over time as they IPO. So like, we understand that we started this on like day one of something that's going to grow, you know, we think in, in terms of the number of companies that are participating in it, you know, continuously over time. And so it's pretty simple. If you're a biotech or pharmaceutical company or diagnostics company or, you know, in life sciences in that way, and if you're focused on China, so if like, you know, you're headquartered there or if, you know, 51% of your business is there at least, and if you're mm. listed on the Hong Kong Stock Exchange um, or the NASDAQ, there's been a handful of these companies that have chosen um, to list on NASDAQ, but they're, you know, they're China companies that are focused on China. So mm. if, you, if you fit those and if you fit, you know, minimum, you know, market cap and liquidity and everything, um, you're included. And so one thing that's, I think, really cool about it is um, just to show... I think how early we were to this trend um, when we launched this in March of 2018, this had 30 companies in it. And today, as you mentioned, it has 56. And that's reflective of this IPO boom that's been happening and just this biotech boom in general that's been happening there. And so as all of those new biotech companies have IPO'd, um, uh, that you know the ones that have qualified, we rebalance and reconstitute this every six months, 
they've been swept into the index. And so it's grown from 30 to 56 over time. And, you know, if the IPO market stays strong there, it, it will keep growing. I mean, it, you know, the, the largest, you know, the NASDAQ biotech index that, tr- that tracks, you know, NASDAQ listed biotech companies has over 200 companies one day. And if, if China, you know, does become, you know, a true global leader in biotech one day, I don't see why this, you know, won't keep growing and, and perhaps could even get over 100 or, or, or maybe even more companies one day. But t- today it's 56. Yeah, great. And uh, just to dig in quickly to the fundamentals, I suppose, you're, you're screening for uh, to uh, select the constituents within the index. So their particular sort of business performance fundamentals in terms of, I don't know, PE ratios or even um, do they have to meet certain revenue or sales uh, metrics, for example, to be allowed into the index? Or is it is it more basic than that in terms of they have to have a certain market cap, for example. Yeah, it's it's that basic. Again, most biotech companies actually don't even have revenue. <laughs> yeah. So um, it makes it is like an index creator that that's one thing about our industry that you know makes makes it challenging to design things. Um, and for this particular one, we're really not, you know, trying to to get we don't want to get that cute, essentially, to use an American term. Mm, yeah. um, you know, we just want this to reflect the entire China innovative, you know, biotech industry of China, and, and um, therefore, you know, we feel like the companies that are choosing Hong Kong and Nasdaq are, you know, the higher quality ones that you know really want to be global leaders. Um, and therefore, if, if you're in this industry um, and if you meet a certain minimum uh, market cap and trading liquidity, um, then you're automatically included. Yeah, great. Okay, well, to finish on this ETF then, is there one constituent within the index at the moment that sort of particularly piques your interest and that you're particularly sort of bullish on or excited about? Not necessarily because you think the equity is going to do X, Y, or Z over the next 12 months, but perhaps because they're particularly innovate, innovative or they've, they've come up with a solution that... Uh, perhaps is unrivaled uh, uh, amongst peers within, within the certain space that it operates in. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, so as you said, it, it's not like a stock pick because I, I really, you know, for most people out there, picking individual biotech stocks is is way too risky. Like even good companies have setbacks, but it's like a company that's reflective of, of what I think is like, you know, special with this theme, um, I would call out one called IMAB. Um, which is actually listed on the NASDAQ, the symbols IMAB. And number one, they have a great pipeline of many drugs, so they're not focused on any one thing. But um, a really important thing happened to them last year. So they're developing actually a cancer immunotherapy drug. This company um, is actually also in in my my cancer index. Um, So they're developing, there's a a target in cancer immunotherapy called CD47. Um, There's a term we use, they they call that cancer's don't eat me signal. And um, companies are trying to design drugs to, to basically kill that signal. And it's it it's the type of drug. It hasn't made it to the market yet. It's promising, um, but it hasn't been totally proven yet. And IMAB um, is one of the leaders in this. So they're not, you know, years behind, like they're at the forefront of this. And they struck a huge deal with AbbVie, um, the mega biotech company um, here in the United States. AbbVie licensed their CD47 inhibitor 
And that's the tape type of headline. Like uh, people, I think, kind of don't notice, but that's a revolutionary headline for a Western company as sophisticated as AbV to be licensing Chinese science for a drug that could potentially be first in class or best in class. And so I'd highlight IMAB because they're an example, like, like I always tell people like with this theme, like you can't create a biotech sector overnight, like, because science doesn't work that way. So many of the drugs that Chinese companies have today are, are, you know, not new inventions. They're what we call fast followers. So, you know, maybe if a drug was invented in the United States a few years ago, maybe there's a Chinese company like, you know, having their invention of it, their version of it approved today. But this is an example of where I think the industry is heading, which is that these companies are, you know, really at the forefront and have a chance to like, quote unquote, win the race um, for certain drugs. And so IMAB's a great example of that through that CD47 inhibitor um, and, and, and others that they're working on in their pipeline. So it's a great company doing great science. Yeah, absolutely. And one that uh, I think a lot of our listeners will be looking into after, after this interview. Um, so th- let's finish on a final question then. Um, to, to look ahead, I guess, for the biotech sector, the, the space as a whole, it seems to me anyway, is perhaps less dependent on economical market cycles than, or at least when you compare it to some other sectors and industries. Firstly, would that be fair? And secondly, then, does that mean we're talking about biotech as a secular growth theme almost? Well, <laughs> not to cop out, but the, it's kind of a, a yes and no. If there's kind of, the answer to that hmm. is kind of a middle ground because it's hmm. not totally immune to s- cyclical things. So for example, you know, yeah. interest rates were a big thing in the news earlier this year. You know, everyone's worried about inflation. And Interest rates affect all growth stocks. And so they're going to affect the multiples. You know, if interest rates uh, and, and inflation starts to go rampant, then that's going to affect all growth stocks, biotech included, because, you know, they're very volatile and growth oriented. Um, but uh, you shouldn't feel as if it's like totally immune to those types of macro factors because it's not. But over the long term, at the end of the day, the thing that really determines biotech's fate is the quality of science. It, that is what you're investing in if you're investing in the biotech sector. You're investing in science. And as somebody who's followed this for a very long time, I can say that you know, I really believe that there's, we're at a special moment in science. And it's already become real. You know, there's already gene therapies on the market, immunotherapies, and, and these other, you know, mRNA vaccines, these amazing new technologies. And based on what I've seen that's in development for the future, um, I think that we're just in the very beginning of like, you know, biology's moment. And so, yeah, I, I think at the end of the day, if, if the science comes through, like we hope it will come through, you know, it has the potential to be a, a very special you know, decade for the sector. But at the end of the day, that's what's going to determine success or failure is the success or failure of, you know, science in general. And so, you know, we're, that's what you're investing in. And, and, and we hope it'll, you know, it, it will play out.
Yeah, absolutely. I think that's the perfect point to to end the interview on. I mean, it's been incredibly fascinating with me. And I think actually, if if you allow us, we'll we'll have to have you back on to to tackle a couple of the uh, ETF points in more detail, and then we can speak about perhaps the biotech sector and the future for the space in more detail as well. But uh, for today, I, th- I think that's it. So thank you very much for joining us on the uh, podcast, Brad. It's been a real pleasure. Likewise, thank you for having me. Thanks for listening, everyone. Just a quick note before we sign off. If you're looking for an easily digestible daily update on the markets, this might be of interest. Opto Updates is our short newsletter sent every day during the trading week, giving you a bulleted list of the top seven stories from the global stock markets. We've done the hard work for you, highlighting relevant opportunities and trends. And in addition, we'll also keep you notified of any new products, stock reports or webinars from the Opto world. If you're interested, sign up using the link in the show notes. And thanks also to Co-Fruition for consulting on and producing the show. Until next time.